You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers Initiative, and here to talk with me about the, well, I mean, not-so-assembled Avengers, because we're going back in time, is John Mills. Indeed, indeed. And boy, I sincerely hope that we can make as many clumsy blockbuster references as possible during this episode, Matt. Because Well, actually, John, I'm just thinking of make like how many like grunge rock song references can I make? Can you please um, that's what I'm thinking of. I and I'm so sorry that I'm not wearing my flannel today. I apologize. But I am yeah. wearing at least a soccer jersey from the home of the grunge movement, Seattle. I'll try not to hold that against you. I will also say that uh, <laughs> let's let's save the soundtrack talk for later because I have some definite yes. thoughts okay. on this one. You okay. know, I have some definite thoughts on this one. Absolutely. Well, uh, we are so excited. Uh, you know, we've only got two more movies now after this uh, in phase three. And just wanted to let you know, when we end phase three, we are going to take a break with Assembling Avengers. Uh, part of that is that it's been a long haul already with assembling avengers but two there's a lot of tv shows and stuff that come up in phase four and john and i need some time to be able to digest all of that material and so we'll definitely keep you updated in fact you know when we get to the last episode of phase three we will for sure let you know um you know when we plan on coming back for phase four but as it is now you know uh john and i were actually talking about this today um, the most interesting thing is, is I have no idea when Phase 4 actually ends. Never. And Phase 4 will never end. Apparently. Um, <laughs> and as I'm looking at it now, Phase 4 is going to be longer than Phase 3 with WandaVision, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Loki, Black Widow, What If, Shang-Chi, The Eternals, Hawkeye, Spider-Man No Way Home, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, Moon Knight, Miss Marvel, Thor, Love and Thunder, Black Panther, oh, and should I forget, most likely between somewhere of Thor and Love and Thunder and Black Panther, we're probably going to have She-Hulk in there as well. Um, and that's not even the end because we still haven't had Ant-Man 3. We haven't had Guardians 3. Oh my gosh, so, that's right. Ant-Man 3 and yeah. Guardians 3 are two movies yep. I'm actually really looking yeah. forward to them. they're not even slated yet i think it's 2023 is when those are supposed to see the light 2023 is going to be a busy so. year for marvel then that's gonna be yeah. pretty nuts so anyway all that to say is that phase four is already almost twice as long now as phase three and that was already long enough and it includes tv shows so anyway with all of that said, uh, thank you so much for joining us. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please make sure that you are subscribed wherever you're listening to it, so that way you'll get all of the episodes here in the 602 Club as soon as they drop. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at the 602 Club. You can find us on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. We've got the entire network on Facebook where you see all that we're doing at Facebook, facebook.com slash trek.fm. We've got the listeners only discussion group you can join and go to trek.fm and you can see every show that's happening on the network as well. So 
John, uh, one of the most interesting things about Captain Marvel, obviously, is that, one, this is going to be the first female-led film that they've done. Um, and this is also a film that they started thinking of in 2013. And the movie itself doesn't actually come out until till 2019. And so the development for this takes a very, very long time, which means they go through writers and they can't quite figure out how they're going to fit her into the MCU and where they're going to use her and why they're going to... And so I, I wanted to start there because this is something that's really fascinating to me because... One, it proves that the MCU was not something that they all had just planned. Like, this is something, especially I think by the time they get to Phase 3, it's a lot looser than a lot of people thought at the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, two, I wanted to ask you as well, on top of that, how do you think that this kind of, like, impacts this film? Because I feel like it puts a lot of pressure on this movie because we've waited till the end of phase three to introduce our fully female-led film till now. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you and I talked about, but we were making jokes through the first two phases. Oh, so now is here. This is where the Black Widow movie is going to happen. Right. <laughs> no. Uh, I, I think that this is, when you see something like this, it does not mean that it's going to necessarily be a movie that turns out poorly or that, you won't like right. or anything like that. What it, what it typically signals to me is that they're overthinking it. Mm. That it's this sort of long development time. You tend to attach to things like Star Trek, the motion picture where it was in development. Sure. Hell is Star Trek phase two TV series for years. And then Star Wars comes out and they kick it. Yeah, everybody knows that history or I, I forgive me for presuming that it's common knowledge, but you know, I, you know, I, I'm old, so I, you know, that's just the way it is. Um, in my in my brain, Tron Legacy, that goes through development hell. That's that takes forever to get there. Superman Returns, all of that type of stuff. And I love Tron Legacy. It's one of the best movies of the last twenty years. Um, Agreed. Superman Returns is not terrible. It's a good movie. It's not a great movie, but it's a good movie. It's you know, I had a good time watching it. Right. Yeah. And Star Trek: Same, The Motion yeah. Picture is it's it's what it is. They tried, but I'd, I'd fight you on that one, but that's a whole, that's another podcast. That they tried. So. Yeah, no, they tried. Well, I mean, uh, no, I, 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 yeah, anyway. it's a whole other thing. Whole other thing. Here we are on TFM and uh, somebody actually asked us why, why we didn't do the Star Trek movies at one point. Maybe we yeah, should. Because we have covered them. Yeah, no, but let's have a Promise. fight. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, typically this type, that type of thing of like that long development thing is usually, it's it's just a sign of them overthinking it. I think mm -hmm. you know they're just they're too much in their own head at this point, and sure. I think that possibly that winds up because they suddenly realize they've waited so long to have a female led superhero movie in the Marvel universe. They know that all eyes are on them, mm -hmm. and I think that added yeah. pressure gets put on there because of Black Panther, because sure. they made such a thing about the mm -hmm. the identity of that movie. Yep. With good cause, I'm not saying it was bad, I'm not saying they shouldn't have, I'm saying yeah. that that was such a thing, and it was so massively successful, and people went gaga for it, Wakanda forever, all of that mm -hmm. stuff. 
I, they got to be completely conscious of that fact here, thinking, oh, boy, what are we going to do? We got to do something. Yep. Well, and I think it, it, the interesting thing that uh, is that on top of that is that they were beat by DC at this game mm-hmm. with Wonder Woman, which was a thoroughly successful film and, mm-hmm. you know, got great ratings. People loved it. And so... I think that was another thing that really put the pressure on here. But the most interesting thing about all of this, and regardless of the fact that this is going to be the first female-led film, I think what is interesting is that they didn't really have a clear picture as to how she was going to fit into the rest of the MCU in the first place. And I think that's the thing that is... One of the things that I think stands out the most throughout the entire film is that this doesn't feel fluid in the way that we are introducing the character. And she does feel very divorced from the rest of the MCU. And then as a character herself, Moving forward, she is going to continue to feel that way because of the way that she's portrayed in this movie. She actually becomes a hindrance, I think, rather than a help to them when they're going to do something like Endgame. I completely agree. I think that this movie, if it comes out before Infinity War, the ending winds up being a little more forgivable because they're boxed in a corner Because with it coming out after Infinity War, the question Mm -hmm. on your brain through this whole thing is, well, why wasn't she there? Right. Why was she not there? And the end of the movie is is essentially, I have to go now. Wait, and you're not going to be in contact like at all for the next Mm -hmm. couple of decades? Because that that doesn't seem right. It seems like maybe you should be making some effort to you know maybe just drop a postcard every so often sup bro how you doing you know like it's so nonsensical for her Mm -hmm. to be and the contrast with that is captain america there's a great reason for him to be out of commission for decades he's literally on ice (laughs) literally on ice (laughs) and so there is an expectation of This would be her going away is like at the end of the 1978 Superman, the movie, Chris Reeve looking at the camera and going, well, off to go fight somebody else and flying off. And you you say, wait, what? No, no, you're here. What? Wait, that's not a good reason to go. Big gulp say, well, see you later. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, it's it's funny you mentioned that because one of the things that my wife, I, I, I turned to her w- after we finished watching the movie and and I asked her, you know, what she thought. She's like, well, this was this was her opinion, so I'm not getting to mine yet. But she said, well, that was a subpar movie. And then she said, so you're telling me that, like, all of the things that have been happening, like, you know, Loki attacking New York or... Any of those things wasn't a time to call in Captain Marvel to help because they all seemed like big problems. And it's like, if you've got an ace up your sleeve, don't you pull it when like aliens start attacking New York or and you got a bunch of like untried heroes? You're not like, wouldn't that be your first 
call, not your last call. I would th- uh, your wife has a terrific point because especially because of the tie in with the Tesseract. I think the second yes. Loki shows up and takes the Tesseract. Yes. You, you pull out that pager and you're like, uh, you're the only person I'm aware of that could possibly handle this. Yes. Right? And it's yep. not a gamble the same way. You show up, mm-hmm. you'll blow Loki into the next galaxy, and the Tesseract is safe again. Yep. Your wife's 100%. absolutely right. Uh, and that's that's why the Tesseract itself being the tie-in, I think, is a bad tie-in. You can have her get the power cosmic other ways. You could have it just be an experimental mm-hmm. engine that tapped some sort of other dimensional energy. It right. doesn't need to tie into the Infinity Stones. Right. It doesn't need to. And yep. having the Tesseract there actually creates more questions about where it is at what time mm-hmm. than anything else. Yep. And so I think having the Tesseract is a giant problem because it's not necessary for the character yeah. to exist in this way. Right. Well, and I mean, then she has a very similar creation to, I mean, you know, um, because the uh, the piece of the Tesseract is, isn't it a piece of the Tesseract that's in the staff that helps create the twins? Yeah, something like that. I mean, anyway, so uh, I, all of this to say, you know, as we kind of look at, at this, like this main question I was asking, like of, of the the waiting so long and the pressure put on the movie and then not necessarily understanding the why of the character and the why she's going to and how she's going to fit into the rest of the MCU. You know, I think some of the issues that this runs into is some of the issues that we kind of talked about in Ant-Man and the Wasp last time where we're like, okay, the timeline stuff here is not helpful. Um, And part of that is when you're trying to do this big, amazingly crazy, you know, multi-film thing that's never been done before and things get pushed back, it can begin to hurt uh the process and 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 in some ways this is one of those things where it's like i think by this point me personally i was just starting to think okay the mcu is getting so big it's getting hard to handle um because of that and i think this film specifically when i look at its production history i feel like it's hurt because the movie doesn't have a good enough why for her to to exist in the first place, but then why to exist in the larger MCU? And with the type of power that she's going to have, what are the ramifications of that going to be for the rest of the MCU as a whole? And yeah, so. Let me be, let me be extremely bold here. Extremely bold. Use the Tesseract if you want to. That's fine. But lose Ronan. Ronan the Accuser being tied in here is another thing that's just a forced reference that it doesn't it's not a big payoff. You see him show up and my reaction isn't right. oh cool it's oh what? I don't want Ronan yeah. here. Ronan is a part of a different story. Ronan's already dead. I already know Ronan's story. I don't mm-hmm. want to waste time with him anymore. Let's give her somebody new. 
and and never mind the fact that I then have to ask the same question. Well, you know who he's related, you know, like who, who he's affiliated with. Why don't you just go blow them all up instead yeah. of going as anyway? Anyway, that, that's that's traveling down the rabbit hole sort of thing. I think that there's uh, just additional structural stuff that um, what they really should have gone for here, and there is a clean way to do it, is the Tesseract and the Ronin stuff very much feels Starkiller base. It's not really necessary to The Force Awakens to have Starkiller base. And a lot of this stuff doesn't feel very necessary to Captain Marvel. It's necessary to the MCU, but -hmm. it's not necessary to her. So they're doing a disservice to the character by shifting the focus away from her to what her place is in the larger narrative. Mm -hmm. And that's not fair to the character. It's additionally not fair that I, and you know, I love to go after this sort of thing. I honestly see a way that you could assemble and re-edit this in such a way that it becomes a more enjoyable film. And well, I let's think, go to yeah. then John's assembly of this <laughs> Avenger. <laughs> Release the John cut. Um, exactly. Okay. I don't have all of the answers, obviously. But while I was watching it this time, this is the only second, only the second time I've watched it. And while I'm watching it, there's a scene where she's hanging upside down and her brain is being scanned by Ben Mendelsohn and company. And you see these flashes of memory and you hear people talking and it's very disorienting and the camera turns and she's upside down. She doesn't know what's going on. And then all of a sudden she, she taps her powers and she blows out of the thing and she starts beating everybody up. Let's call it the Batman Begins approach where we start in the middle of something that we don't know exactly what's going on, right? Bruce Wayne in a Chinese prison. Here, a character we've seen on the poster, captive, upside down, people scanning her memory, and she doesn't know why, turns into a fight, get away. That's our opening. I'm immediately hooked. What's happening here? Why can't she recall things? Why are they scanning her memory? What's so Mm -hmm. important about her? I'm instantly given these questions and I'm way more invested. Yes. You move that and then you trim some of the other stuff back. Some of the stuff with the Supreme Intelligence doesn't work very well. You trim some of that mm-hmm. stuff back. You reorder some of the other scenes. You turn some stuff into true flashbacks while she, say, looks at an object and all of a sudden her memory goes back and we go back with her and those sorts of things. And so the whole thing becomes like a Christopher Nolan type of approach to all of a sudden the timelines converge at the end. She's our hero and it's the regaining of her memory and everything coming together. That's our big triumphant emotional beat as she reclaims her powers and beats the bad guys. I think that is just a better way to have approached this movie and all of the pieces are right there. That's, that's my pitch. Yeah, I, I really like that idea because I do think and and I'm not always as much of a stickler for construction of a film the way you are but I do think that this film it finds itself more confused by the way it's trying to tell the story than 
competent. Um, and part of that is because it it wants to have it both ways. Like it wants to kind of present this nonlinear storytelling without really being nonlinear. And um, it doesn't lean into one side or the other enough. And therefore, you know, I, I think that's where, like you said, the Batman Begins or the, the Man of Steel type of structure works so much better in that. Um, and I think you're 100% right that if you start off like that, it's really bold. Um, it's basically how they start off Thor Ragnarok, right? Like he's in the middle of this thing and you're trying to figure yeah. out like what's going on? Why is Thor here? You know, like, what's happened? You would absolutely want that. And I think that also helps with her and her memory problems too. You know, like it makes that more interesting um, because it's – I the way that they set it up, I don't – know if that is all of that interesting of a story as well so the structure doesn't lend me to really question like why she can't remember any of those type of things that well to make it an interesting mystery um it just more feels like maybe this is a wrong way to put it but it just kind of feels like a perfunctory story beat um oh she doesn't have her you know and instead of yeah. make a wonder why she doesn't have her you know so I think that that's something that they just didn't work on well. And part of that, I think, you know, comes back to the beginning of the conversation where we talked about all of the problems that they had with, you know, getting this movie finalized and lots of different people writing the script and everything. And it just doesn't feel like they put their, you know, best foot forward. And and I think this is a place to which... We lacked the vision that some of the best directors in the MCU have had where they had the character, they were the ones helping create the script, and, and then they put this through. You know, obviously you think of uh, Iron Man uh, and, you know, uh, Civil War and Winter Soldier as being the ones that just clearly have this story idea, this vision that really just flows through from start to finish and, and part of that seems like the director you know uh iron man 3 obviously is an example of that too with shane black you know um black panther that way with ryan coogler yeah you know so yeah. and and even we talked about ant-man um even though it didn't come from uh peyton reed he clearly has an idea of what he wants to do with that movie and he makes it work so anyway all that said i think that this is just one of those places where this committee type of filmmaking doesn't work very well uh and so i i think your idea of restructuring the film like that it's not like you're changing anything in the story you're just restructuring and you end up with a completely different product like that and i think on that i love it i think it would have been great oh good i'm glad yay <laughs> um but so long as we're talking about construction something i want to jump into because it's something I'm also very passionate about. I am a child both of the 80s and the 90s. I'm one of those Gen X kids that straddles both decades. I had an older brother, so I cut my teeth on music in the 80s, but I was coming of age at the end of the 80s, and I was uh, fully into the, the 90s. I was there for the grunge thing. I was there for the alt-rock mm -hmm. scene. I was all of that type of stuff. I was there for the rise of rap. 
I was there for all of that right. stuff. Doesn't make me special. It just that's just when I happen to be yeah. alive. The music selection here, and th- th- this is uh, before I get into the music selection. Something I want to say. Let, let me throw this to you. As we're sitting here talking about the construction and all of those sorts of things, do you think the problem is also it's the overthinking layered on top of the fact that we just have more reference points by now? We have more reference points for what works for these things, these superhero movies. And that's why we come in like it's another part of the up. It, 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 it's what makes it a slightly steeper incline, right? You referenced Man of Steel and, and you know, when I talked about Batman Begins, just in terms of those reorganizing, reorganizing principles that's something that the that phase one and not even really phase two have up against them, right? Marvel is finding its own identity and casting its own thing. And unfortunately, I think Captain Marvel, with its prolonged pre-production, is in a slot where there's just too much to compare it to. Does that make sense or am I reading too much into it? No, and I think that does come into play with the choices that they make with the needle drops specifically uh, as to kind of where you're going. Um, and part of the frustration with that, I think, in the film is that Iron Man, Iron Man 2 clearly put their stamp on what Tony Stark's music tastes are, you know, with ACDC and the like. Guardians and Guardians 2 have given us the best mixtapes and and James Gunn is is very very good at that you know um he you know i think of like him and people like Zach Braff who you know were just able to create really iconic soundtracks that are basically just mixtapes of things that they love here you're obviously playing in the 90s but the problem is is the music has no connection with the character herself she doesn't care about salt and pepper or rem or nirvana or any of those things and so it means absolutely nothing to her that this music is playing and the you know like the music isn't telling us anything about her character by it playing it's literally like you said it's just a reference point hey you're in the 90s did you ever forget we're in the 90s we're in the 90s let's play a little no doubt so you remember you're in the 90s listen okay this is what really gets under my skin, right? Is I know that part of the mission statement of this film is to celebrate the contributions of women to culture and popular culture in specific, which is great. That's absolutely admirable and absolutely a great thing to do. But the music selection is just, uh, it's flat. It's to use a word you used earlier, perfunctory, Right. I don't know how you have a movie about uh, a woman character set in the 90s that doesn't even have a Liz Fair reference or an L7 <laughs> or Tori Amos or Indigo Girls or yeah. The Breeders or Juliana Hatfield 3 or Lauren Hill or, mm-hmm. uh, you yeah. know, slash the Fugees, right? Like, yep. it sort of blows my mind because they're the easiest music references to make. And I'm using the word easy because I don't want to be mean and say lazy, but they kind of are. I think you, I mean, you could throw 
just a cheeky Spice Girls song into there. That yeah, when she's yeah. talking, okay, instead of come as you are, the 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 needle drops. And, and listen, before anybody rolls their eyes or says Spice Girls, they sold 18 million yep. copies. Okay? One eight. 18 million copies of their first album. They were a worldwide, worldwide smash sensation. They would have been perfectly contemporary to have something like Two Become One playing on that record player. Nobody wants to admit that the Spice Girls were huge, but trust me, the Spice Girls were huge. The Spice Girls were unavoidable. I collected the Chupa Chup rappers, okay? Judge me all that you want to. I went to the concert. I did all of these things because the Spice Girls were huge. That is just an example of if you lean into the music choices a little bit more and to your point, have them talk about the character, then these music choices are much more essential and useful to the movie. And that let, let me put my soapbox away. Sorry. Uh, no, I mean, again, I think, you know, when you do a needle drop a lot of times in films, it is to say something about the character and the situation that they're in and all of those type of things, which, you know, again, I, I harken back to what you do with Guardians, uh, especially, and of course, then what you do in the Iron Man films. Um, because all of those songs are saying something about Tony Stark, his who he is, what he's thinking, you know, like his mentality at that point. And I, I think this is a question that I have for you about just the, I would say the shackles that they put on Brie Larson in this movie, mm -hmm. which is to take away from her the ability, the, the reason that you hire her in the first place. So the reason that you hire Brie Larson is because she is known for just incredible roles like Short Term 12, The Spectacular Now, Room. That's the type of stuff that she's done. You know, obviously she's done, she did Kong Skull Island and stuff like that, which I actually really like. I like that movie a lot too. Uh, regardless of that. The problem is here is that we don't allow her to have any emotion because we make it bad for her to have emotion in this movie. So we want we're we're not going to let her emote. That's the whole thing. The bad guys are trying to keep her from you know embracing who she is fully, and if she does that, like they're going to be trouble. But it it hamstrings your character to the point where it's like. Walking cardboard. She doesn't get to have anything in here. And and the mar and the problem is is the Marvel universe is full of personalities. I mean the this and and this is one of the things the the problem of this movie. She's playing against one of the biggest personalities in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is Fury. And I mean, he's just full of personality. So I the the time that Coulson in this movie has so much more personality, Loretta Lynch has much more personality, and Ben Mendelsohn oozes personality. 
The only one who doesn't have any personality is the character we're supposed to care about. And and the problem is, is I don't care about her in this film because there's not a lot to care about because there's not a lot of character being portrayed. Okay. Brie, I agree with you. The issues with her character are not Brie Larson's fault. The moments where she does come alive in this movie, the interrogation scene that I want to uh, uh, open the movie with, um, mm-hmm. any of her, her scenes with Sam Jackson, there's actual chemistry between the two of them. Yeah. yeah it's actually absolutely. fun to watch them. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that that's where the movie like really does come alive. It's like, oh, oh, okay, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like this character. And I know the point they're trying to make with Jude Law being the jerk face who won't let her feel her emotions. But it's never clear why feeling her emotions is ties into the story. Like I I get it ties into the theme they're going for. But there's nothing that makes it work within the story that they've constructed, if that makes sense. Um, it doesn't click for me, I should say. It, it doesn't seem to work. And I think that as a result, it is the director's, plural, fault for giving Brie Larson the direction not to show somebody working actively to suppress their emotions but to portray somebody as truly emotionless. And it makes it much harder for the audience to connect with such a character. Example of somebody who pulls it off greatly and made a career out of it is Leonard Nimoy. Yes. Yep. You could tell he felt something, mm-hmm. but he was actively suppressing Yes. I think that Brie Larson as an actress is completely capable of doing that. And I think she just got bad direction. And so it's, um, you know, I'm taking, I'm just, I'm taking a page from Roger Ebert's book where he said a bad performance is not an actor's fault. It's a director's fault because the director is supposed to telling, be telling the actor what they want. And if they're not communicating that well, the actor's got nothing to work with. And I think yes. that's that's what happens here. Well, and I, I heartily agree with you because, you know, when I have seen her in other things, and I had seen those three other movies that I mentioned, actually four, because, you know, I had seen um, Kong School Island, which is a big dumb movie, right? But, you know, she's not bad in it. Don't um, apologize for your for your enjoyment of Kong Skull Island. It's a movie yeah. that I recommend to people regularly. I I loved it honestly, uh, and our friend Nick worked on it, which was fun too. So yeah, the visual effects were a lot better in Kong Skull Island than they were here. But go on. <laughs> so I, yeah, I think the thing that bothers me is that I know you have an actor who has the ability to give an incredible performance. And he won't let them give it. And I think that that's really frustrating. And I, I think the frustrating part of that is because I think that the movie wants to try to give a message that actually gets truncated by not allowing the actress to really do what she does best. And... That's that's a bad choice. That's a bad directorial choice, and it's a bad story choice. 
same time. So, yes, yeah, and it's you know, I I mean, I don't want to I don't want to harp on any points here, and that that's the thing is I know that we're sitting here sort of stomping on the movie, honestly, and I I don't want to. Uh, mm-hmm. But but even as we sit here and we're, we're you know we're talking about obviously the directors gave the wrong direction because Brie Larson is trying <laughs> to come out of her 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 director's zone here and you see it happening when she's interacting with Sam Jackson or even some of the scenes with Ben Mendelsohn are are really mm-hmm. working. Um, and I, you know, I want to say, okay, well, but but what was positive here? But then I think about the visuals, and the visuals are bafflingly dodgy. I don't. There was one scene in specific, one shot in specific, that looked like a nineteen nineties era CG shot, and it's when yeah. she's running up the steps in the beginning, one of the earliest scenes to talk to the central intelligence or I'm sorry, central intelligence. No, that's the people that are, yeah. um, wait, no, they're it's, good. It's pretty much they're, the same. Yeah. Um, the Supreme intelligence when she's running up the, the steps and it's, it's a, you know, it's a long shot. Even the figure running up the steps, I, I look at it and I say, this, this is, this predates the prequels, like which mm-hmm. had some of their challenges with these sorts of shots. And like, yeah, it doesn't make sense to me doesn't make sense to me at all um and there are like even when she lands in the blockbuster and i look at it and i look at it and i say what why is that entire thing cg it doesn't make sense you could build that awning like what why especially considering the Mm -hmm. fact that so much happens around that blockbuster would it have killed you to build that awning so that it was like it would have sold the scene better so you know i i but but the thing is, it's more inconsistency than anything else. Like the the visual work with Sam Jackson, the de aging, mm-hmm. it's great. It's great. Although he should be balding the way he was in um, real life, because it would have looked yep. it would have looked more real uh, to me, honestly. So, yeah, I, I mean, I help me out here, man. Like, what works for you here? What what is what's clicking? What's let, let's pull out of the nosedive here. What what's going on that works that really clicks for you here? You know, I think the the thing that works the most for me, and this is interesting, is uh, I I think Loretta Lynch is really good in this movie as Maria Rambo. Um, not only is she very good in the movie, but I think she does a fantastic job of portraying somebody who is trying to deal with the insanity of the fact that the person that she was so close to is back from the dead and was in space. And just the emotion, I, I think that's the thing, is like she's able to give the performance that Brie Larson doesn't get to give because she gets continually told to pull things back it feels like and maria rambo gets to do everything that you would want somebody to do in in these situations and and she really feels it and 
I like the relationship that her daughter, you know, has with them. And I think all of that is just super cute um, and well done. And I I liked all that. I think Ben Mendelsohn is fantastic in the role that he's given here. It's perfect for him because you're used to him kind of, I think, playing a sort of, I don't know, sleazy bad guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yet that's not who he is in this movie. And so to kind of turn that on its head, I think is fantastic. Uh, so I love that as well. Um, so I think, you know, the thing is, is that this movie has pieces to which you could have created something really interesting and unique um, and different um, and the problem is is that they 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 don't give them that opportunity. And not only do they not give them opportunity, but the problem is that I've got so many Marvel movies to compare it to at this point. And then I've and introductions, right? But I'm also stuck comparing it to Wonder Woman, which is a completely much more successful introduction of a all you know a, a fully female led film for a superhero genre and it, that's the thing that i think hurts this movie the most is that what it's trying to do in the same way of black panther it completely fails at because it doesn't give us first and foremost an interesting story a really compelling story for the main character to walk through. And I think a large part of that has to do with the fact that they're more concerned with tying it into the continuity than giving the character a true origin story. Mm-hmm. And yeah. well, cause they're so worried about where does she fit in the MCU? And right. it's like, yeah. And, and, and frankly, yeah, they do introduce the Superman problem. Superman is a problem when you're making a movie, you cannot have him go up against anybody who is even a whiff less powerful than he is because the audience knows, oh, well, he can just punch through them. What, is, you know, what yep. would he do? What's keeping him from doing that? I don't get even a sense, honestly, of a moral code with Captain Marvel at the end of this movie. And again, that's the fault of the writing. I don't get a sense of oh, well, she won't punch through somebody because she was raised by people who instilled a value of human life in her. Now, in a sense, she was raised by people who didn't value life at all and were completely utilitarian. The only person who showed her real kindness was Nick Fury, in a sense. Okay. Yep. And speaking of Nick Fury, okay, since we've gone through here, in uh, and we made reference to it when we talked about Winter Soldier, Nick Fury still has his eye. It's a damaged eye, but it's an eye that has enough of an eye to have a retina scan in Captain America Winter Soldier. But at the end of this movie, he's looking at replacement eyes because his eye has been, quote-unquote, blown out, burned out. Do you give them wiggle room on that? I mean... I guess I give him wiggle room in the sense that he doesn't pick one. 
he just kind of throws, you know, the thing across the desk, you know, and so he doesn't pick a false eye. It seems like he's just going to basically be okay with wearing a patch. But, I mean, it's a moment that's not necessarily needed in the film. So, question, you know. How he loses his eye is funny. I maintain that you should have just had moments like the first time he almost loses an eye in the movie. Make it a gag. You don't actually find it out. You like it's it's almost as if he's cursed. He keeps getting hit in that, you know, near that mm-hmm. eye. And every time as an audience, you're like, oh, that's the, oh, he didn't lose his eye there. I think that's yep. a much funnier gag to carry forward than yep. space alien cat scratches him. I agree with you. I mean, I think. I think it's it's more fun to never show how he loses his eye. Than to show how he loses his eye. I think it's it's a better gag, and it's just it's one of those things that like is is a consummate of this MCU is that Nick Fury lost his eye, and it's kind of like the Joker. Do you want to know how I got these scars? Yeah, you don't know, but you have a lot of close calls that it's almost you know. Um, and I think that would have worked a lot better for the film. And I, you know, I want to go back to the fact that I think. You know, the work on Nick Fury isn't isn't bad, but like you said, both of us grew up in the time period of watching Samuel L. Jackson in that time period. And he doesn't work because in the sense that he doesn't look like Sam Jackson from that time period because, yeah, Sam Jackson had a much higher receding hairline at that point. Yeah, and. Oh. Yes. I I so I think the work that they do it's like well it just it it's good but it's not great because it doesn't completely fit. And the thing is you can easily say oh well that's not being fair. This is Nick Fury, this isn't Sam Jackson. I get that. But also hair hair is still your touch and go piece. Hair is still the trickiest piece to get, I think. Uh there may be visual effects people that are rolling their eyes you know, if any of you are listening, and you're saying, "Oh boy, this guy doesn't understand eyelashes at all," or "Oh, does he even know anything about nostrils?" Fair, I get it, but that hairline, yeah, I, I, I mean, for me, it's a quibble though, because I think that de- the de aging in general is really well done with him. I don't question mm-hmm. yeah. Nick yeah. Fury no, through agree. this movie being that age. And I know you're going to hate this. And I'm prepared for your hate. I, I welcome your hate. It will be like a warm, soothing sun after a cloudy day for me. But the, uh, the de-aging here is way better than what happens at the beginning of a- Aquaman. And that would be... Oh, you mean with Tamara Morrison? Yes. Specifically, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't yeah, think that I, was I particularly right. good. Um, no, I mean... I- you know, in the end, I, gosh, um, de-aging is such a difficult thing to do in the first place because it's it's just never perfect. But I, I do mm. think that this is better and more consistent than than. I, um, I, yeah. I disagree. I disagree with you about the perfect because Kurt Russell in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two 
was perfect. That's that true. Was although um, perfect, they also had a. I mean, he wasn't in the entire film, so no, I know, I know. You, you could but concentrate right, everything right. into yeah. into one small segment as opposed to sustained throughout the film. But I think that the de aging work here with Fury is great. It's less great with Coulson, oddly. Yeah, it's um, not good with him. And in fact, it's like they've spent all of their time on Fury, and they're just like, eh, whatever with Coulson. I don't think it was eh, whatever. I think it was they spent all their time with Fury, and it's it's almost like they were watching the dailies, and then the director said, oh, great, let's see Coulson. Oh, right. Um, At the end of the week. We'll have that at the end of the week. Look, I, I'm not saying, I, I'm just being funny. I know how hard this work is. And I, I know how much effort is put into it, but you know, I, I just think that the the Sam Jackson stuff is is far more successful yeah. than the stuff they did with Colson. Yeah. Uh, no, or I Clark totally Gregg, agree. I should say here. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about the score from Pinar Toprak. Um, mm. And what did you think? I mean, you know, it is our first theme for a female superhero in the marvel mcu you know we haven't been i i would say ecstatic about a lot of the soundtracks we've been like oh it's good you know but here you know i think you would hope that you would get a theme to really embody that character so how do you how do you think it does i i didn't find it particularly memorable i mean that I, I didn't think it was bad but i wasn't nuts for it i thought it was there that's my take so this is the thing about themes these days and i don't know if i okay obviously john williams is just a genius and so many of those thematic writers from back in the day like jerry goldsmith or uh, james horner they were very good at creating melodic themes that had through lines and had a rise and a fall and came back together to create this full beautiful sound and i feel like so many of the composers these days they can come up with a couple of interesting notes but then it just becomes like note salad and mm-hmm. then they kind of come back with those interesting notes and then it becomes more note salad. And it, instead of it feeling like this beautifully connected, interwoven theme that really works together, and it's almost as if they're afraid to do the the thing that John Williams, you know, made so famous. Um, and I don't know why. I don't know why. And it's a it's a disappointing thing that more superhero movies and especially like it, it's Captain Marvel. You want her to have a really cool theme. And I can't even remember the theme. And then, you know, I, I, again, I'm stuck comparing it to the only other thing that we have, which is Wonder Woman. And Wonder Woman has a very memorable theme, you know, one that. She didn't even get in her own movie, but and I know you don't love, but you love its presentation more, I, I think, in her own film than you do in I, I, I go BBS. back and forth on Wonder Woman's theme, but uh, it but is memorable. But at least it's there, right? I yeah. mean, like, it, it is a memorable theme that you, you know and you can hum. Like, if I asked you to hum it right now, you could do it. Like, 
you can't do that with <laughs> I, I don't Captain know I... Marvel. And honestly, <laughs> you probably can't do that with any MCU character except for the Avengers theme itself. Uh, the uh, the end credit, the uh, the theme in Iron Man 3. I actually, that yep, there Tyler, you go. Ba- Tyler yep. Bates' work is in my brain. Um, and I think I could probably recall some of Ant-Man, but... Um, yeah. Yeah, I... I don't know, man. I, I it's um, it's tough because this is one of those things where I don't want to be too heavy-handed with with Captain Marvel, and I know that there were people that truly enjoyed this film a great deal. I mean, but, it made over a billion dollars, so it. But, yeah. it, but what I would say in response to that is, it feels almost like that's a a gimme with Marvel. Mm -hmm. It would be very easy for me to say that feels like a gimme for Marvel, except for the fact that Ant-Man and the Wasp does not perform to this level. And the thing is, I think both of them are plagued by the same sort of problems. It's -hmm. just that Ant-Man and the Wasp is a little bit, not even a little bit, Ant-Man and the Wasp, it's just Peyton Reed gives so many more enjoyable mm-hmm. moments yeah. that that yeah. lift up the rest of that the rest of that movie. And I just don't Yeah. I think what it comes down to, honestly, and you know, forgive me for saying it if you have to forgive me for saying it, is you just need a different director in the chair here. I, I do. I, I think yeah. that you just need a different director. Um because I think in a different director's hands, somebody who's a little bit closer to the auteur scale that, and you know what? You made the reference, Ryan Coogler. That is a director. He sits down. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm going for. This is what this movie is going to be like. Boom. You get black Panther, John Favreau. Mm -hmm. Boom. You get Iron Man, Patty Jenkins. Boom. You get wonder woman. I don't feel like I had directors here who were that. And I think this movie needed that. Well, I mean, they have a hard time finding the directors for this film in the first place. Um, and it's it's two directors. It's um, Anna Bowden and, and Ryan Fleck directing together. And, yeah, I, I think... I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna put a lot of the problems with this film down to them as well as the the writing of this the story in general. Um, you know, I just don't I just don't think it, it's up to snuff, and um, it's very clear I think that that's the case um, because the movie just doesn't hold together very well, you know, and it's not memorable. I think the the thing that I would say about this movie the most is that it's utterly forgettable. And that is not what you want from this type of film. And so I guess what I come down to here, John, is what are you going to rate Captain Marvel? I am fully prepared and I'm holding my desk for emotional support right here. I would ask for everybody to understand that I'm not a terrible person. And uh, I try my best every day to be good and even be better. 
But I got to give Captain Marvel one star. It fell a half star on this viewing. It got one and a half on my first viewing. There are too many fundamental problems with this movie. None of them having to do with the cast. All of them having to do with the script and the editing and the direction. That cannot be overcome for me. This is one star. And in fact, as I was soul searching and giving it this rating, it caused another movie in the MCU rankings to lose half a star because I realized I had to be honest with myself in my assessments. Wow. Wow. Uh, Do you want to tell everybody what that is? Because I'm fascinated now. You're about to find out. Don't you worry. Okay. Um. This lost a whole star for me in the rewatch. Oof. It was at two and a half. It's one and a half now. And part of that is just because I don't think the movie is very interesting. And in all honesty, isn't that one of the worst things you can say about a film is that it's just not very interesting? Yes. And at least when I... like. At least Thor Ragnarok makes me feel anger. <laughs> right? But this movie just makes me feel nothing. And that's a problem. So with that, John, now I'm super excited to hear uh, your rankings and to see which one lost half a star. Mm. It's actually two lost half a star. Woo, yeah. buddy. Yeah, Everybody I, I hold just... on to your britches. Oh, don't worry. They're on the lower end of the scale to begin with, so don't worry about that. All right, so here, here's my uh, obligatory MCU list. Captain America the Winter Soldier. Will it ever be dethroned, folks? I don't know. No. Iron Man 3. Ant-Man. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Iron Man. Black Panther. Guardians of the Galaxy. Doctor Strange. Captain America Civil War. Captain America, the first Avenger, Ant-Man and the Wasp, the Incredible Hulk, Avengers Infinity War, Thor, Spider-Man Homecoming, Marvel's The Avengers, oddly, Howard the Duck, Thor the Dark World, Iron Man 2, losing half a star this week, Thor Ragnarok. Dropping to one and a half stars. Also losing half a star this week in a moment of honest self-reflection. Avengers Age of Ultron. And coming in last. Captain Marvel. Because like you said, Avengers Age of Ultron, I'll at least get mad at it. I will at least get angry because I will say, how could you assemble the same team? And have it go so wrong. Whereas this, I just kind of feel bad for everybody involved. So there you go. That's my rankings. How about you? Nice. Well, I guess we'll start with number one. Captain America. Winter Soldier. There you go. Yep. Uh, Iron Man, Iron Man 3, Civil War, The First Avenger, Black Panther... Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Ant-Man, Doctor Strange, The Incredible Hulk, Spider-Man Homecoming, 
Guardians of the Galaxy, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Avengers, Infinity War, so Avengers, and then Avengers Infinity War, The Dark World, Iron Man 2, Thor, Howard the Duck, Age of Ultron, Captain Marvel, and Thor Ragnarok. Because even though I get angry watching Thor Ragnarok, I'd rather be not angry and watch Captain Marvel. Fair enough. And they're the same rating, so it's just, you know, I'd rather have something that, you know, at least we got some nice Fury Captain Marvel moments, so... Let me ask you one teeny tiny question. You had never seen Howard the Duck before this, right? Given its reputation, did you ever, ever think that it would not be dead last on your list? I had no idea. So fascinating obviously to watch it and realize no i'd rather watch that than age of ultron or you know captain marvel or, or thor, ragnarok. thor ragnarok yeah so how crazy um, is that yeah i never thought that would happen so what a world we live in matt what it's amazing. a world we live in which is why we do this show because it's been so much fun revisiting all of these marvel films so next time it's the granddaddy of them all Endgame. Um, but before we get there, John, if anybody wants to see your Endgame, where can they find you online? Well, look up my Endgame online as Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. Uh, as we record this, I'm taking one of my sabbaticals from social media at large, but I'm out there still on Goodreads and Letterboxd. Let's connect. Let's have fun. Uh, I warn you, I have no barriers when it comes to books and movies i will watch anything no matter how controversial uh and i will read anything no matter how controversial because i just i just like to go out there and just sample stuff uh and you can of course find me co-hosting uh two shows on uh the nerd party network uh the first one is called house lights where we look at the work of directors uh you know by decade or by entire career or what have you uh, we have all sorts of fun combinations and co-hosting another delightful little show uh, about Star Wars called Aggressive Negotiations, which I co-host with you, Matt Rushing, and also uh, Snyder Cuts, which I know you're going to talk about uh, here on the 602 Club. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, you can find me all over social media under the name Matt Rushing 2 uh, That's Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero, all of those type of places. Uh, and of course, like John said, you know, uh, here in the 602 Club feed, you can find Snyder Cuts as well as uh, what we've got with Assembling Avengers and, of course, the main show with everything else we're doing there with uh, Christy Morris. So I hope you will uh, enjoy that. Check that out. Subscribe so you get all of these shows in one place. You can also find me uh, here on the network. I've got a few other shows. One is called The Orb, Literary Tracks. Warp 5 and The Artificial Tango. The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Literary Trek is about the books and the comics of Star Trek. Warp 5 is about Star Trek Enterprise. And The Artificial Tango is about Star Trek Picard as Chris Jones and I walk through Season 2, which has honestly been delightful so far. Uh, and then you can find me over on the Nerd Party Network. When I didn't do aggressive negotiations, I was doing Owl Post with Drea Kaufman, which is a Finnish show, 
and that was all about the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. But as always, thank you so much for joining us. Avengers! Avengers!